All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for giving us the completed canon and giving us the space and the motivation and the, the time to learn it uh, so that we might be delivered, so that we might learn more and more of your grace and your love. These are the overarching themes in your word, of course. Your Son Himself, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is grace and love, grace and truth. We are so grateful and thankful, mostly for that work that He accomplished, that You sent Him to accomplish on a cross 2,000 years ago to make an evening like this one even a reality. We do just ask for Your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. This evening's message is a pretty much a fresh rite um, based on uh, the last few lessons that we've had, last few weeks of lessons we've had. From Tuesday's lesson, I did want to say this, regarding the water of the Word, there's something new and refreshing every time we read our Bibles, even if it's the 100th, you name it, 100th plus time we've read a certain book or passage, if we're humble, God gives us a greater grace. It's the only book. I was thinking about that the other day. Um, I'm halfway through a, a, a series of three books that I just read just to get my mind off of things. And the series is like 2,500 pages long. And uh, I said, boy, I want to follow the read a book twice. You know, I read the first one twice, I guess, technically, but... And then I started thinking about the Bible, how we read the books in the Bible like many, many times. And it never gets old. If anything, it keeps unfolding. It's amazing. There's no other book like it, right? I mean, as much as you like a certain book, and you're like, oh, I read Harry Potter 12 times. There's nothing like the books in the Bible. And this is what I liked about this particular uh, point from Tuesday's lesson. There's something new and refreshing every time we read our Bibles even if it's the hundred-plus time we've read a certain book or passage. If we're humble, God gives us a greater grace. Matthew 13, 12, James 4, 6. We're pretty familiar with James 4, 6, but how about Matthew 13, 12? For whoever has to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. So God's in the practice, uh, in the habit of giving more and more grace to humble individuals, and those are the individuals who do read their Bibles uh, the way that it's been suggested now for a very long time from this pulpit. I was thinking about this too um, as I was listening to Tuesday's message and thinking about where the Spirit's taken this congregation. So it's magnificent um, what I see. But here's one premise that seems to be uh, foundational to our lessons the spiritual life isn't meant to be complicated. In fact, it's actually very simple once you have the correct perspective. It's not meant to be complicated. Actually, it's very simple. I think that we don't, <laughs> we don't like simple because simple is this way. It's, here's your marching orders. Any questions? And it'd be very simple if we just took our marching orders and went on our way. 
But I got to go bury the dead. But I got to go take care of this. But I got to do that. There's always a, 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 you know, a bunch of buts as to why we don't have a simple spiritual life. I believe so many of our issues stem from the simple fact that we grew up in this country. This has been coming up an awful lot in the lessons as well. And don't get me wrong, I love my country. It's not about that. But I do believe that so many of our issues stem from the simple fact that we grew up in this country. It's funny, for years I thought the U.S. was this sort of, quote, last-ditch effort by God before the rapture of the church. And maybe the rapture will come once our great country implodes under the weight of its own antichrist arrogance. But that's not the perspective he's been giving me. As I've continued to see it all as truth, taking a more big-picture, godly viewpoint, you know, since he does, after all, love the whole world, we're so egocentric, the world doesn't revolve around the United States. God sees the whole world, he loves the whole world. And so that's the perspective that he's been trying to give us. As I've continued maturing, what I've realized is that this whole idea that the U.S. is somehow the blessed or blessed country in the world system is a big old hunk of cow dung. Did I stutter on that one? Let me say it again. The more mature I get, what I've realized is that this whole idea that the U.S. is somehow the blessed country in the world system is a big old hunk of cow dung. What I've realized is that we are like the Corinthians, rich, spoiled, flippant, arrogant, and most of all, increasingly friendly with the world. Heck, think about it. Politically, as long as I've been alive, 47 years now, Politically, it's been a foregone conclusion for many, many years that the U.S. is the world leader. Dwell on that. Why is the U.S. the world leader? Ask yourself that question and then ask yourself who the God of this world is. Again, don't get me wrong, I love my country just like I am able to still love a person who happens to be Functioning in their flesh in my presence. That's not the point at all. So please don't mischaracterize my heart here. What I'm saying is that with the proper perspective, especially regarding the gospel and our great commission, what I'm realizing is that country borders aren't what we're supposed to be focusing on. For our citizenship is in heaven, so says Scripture. We are to undertake God's perspective from up high, looking down on the earth as one big area that belongs to Him alone. And as ambassadors for Christ, we are to fulfill our mission without partiality. Remember the parable of the rich man and the poor man at the table? We are to fulfill our mission without partiality, for God doesn't favor partiality. I'm not convinced that the riches in this country, that this country has been given, haven't been the source 
of all kinds of evil in this world. Who owns Hollywood? We do. Do you know what most people think of the United States? Depends on what movies they've seen from Hollywood. So I'm not convinced that the riches this country has been given haven't been the source of all kinds of evil in this world. Paul, like I am speaking to you all today, was ever aware of this within the hearts and minds of the churches, even back in ancient times. And you might say, how could this be? You might ask. Maybe Solomon was on to something. Ecclesiastes 1.9, That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. This is not novel, me speaking this way. We're going to get into the Scripture. This is just me being contemporary about what's already in the Bible, where our minds ought to be focused on, what our hearts should be in tune to. Now, as we read this passage we're going to read, I want you to think really hard about the state of affairs in our beloved country, the United States. And I also want you to take what the Spirit's conveying right now very personally. Don't look around and say, oh, it's the rest of the country. Oh, it's them, it's this person, it's that person, all the darn politicians. The Spirit wants you to take what I'm about to teach you very personally. So don't do this game. And if you're offended by any of this, or you're feeling that rising sense of, you know, uh uh-oh, time to tune out for a bit, then stop it. All I could think about was Bob Newhart. Remember that? Remember the psychology thing for five bucks? I have this problem. Stop it! No, you guys don't remember that? Anyways, that's all I can think about. Just stop it. Cut it out. Don't let your flesh hijack this moment. The perspective is absolutely critical to our studies right now. We're going to read a chapter in 1 Timothy, but before we do, I'd like to give you the context of 1 Timothy. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, a long time, uh, a long time known godly pastor who Paul had taken, quote, under his wing. Timothy was born in Lystra and Galatia. But Paul sent him to multiply, uh, multiple churches to spread the gospel. Timothy was in Ephesus when Paul wrote this letter. So he wasn't in his hometown. He was actually in Ephesus. And if you recall, Ephesus, we read pretty much the whole book in the past couple of months or so. Ephesus was arguably more mature than, say, Corinth. Which is the church, I believe, the United States, Corinth which is the church I believe the United States mostly resembles, at least definitely up here in the Northeast. So, so what? So what this means is that Paul saw fit to remind Timothy of the dangers of wealth and worldliness while he was in a more mature setting even. So if he can write this to them back then, then we ought to listen now. Go to 1 Timothy 6.1. 1 Timothy 
All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them, because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more, because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. Sound familiar? That's authority orientation. Paul is teaching and telling Timothy to teach and preach authority orientation up here on the board. 1 Timothy 6.2, Paul encouraged Timothy to teach the church authority orientation to sow goodness, specifically so that it would bear fruit, reap, to the benefit of the brethren, a la Galatians 6.7. Again, Paul encouraged Timothy to teach the church authority orientation because that's what would benefit the brethren. Up here on the board, Galatians 6.7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. We've had enough on authority orientation as of late, so let's press on. Again, those, verse 2, those who have been, or those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, now I want to point something out, who does not agree with, the, with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me show you something here, at least give you something to think about. <clears throat> those of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, the majority writer in the New Testament, made this statement around 63 A.D., a few years before his death, and about seven years after he wrote the book of Romans. He still clung to the words of Jesus, regardless of who he was teaching, whether Jew or Gentile. Again, Paul, the majority writer of the New Testament, made this statement around 63 A.D., towards the end of his life, frankly, just a few years before he died, before he was martyred, and about seven years after he wrote the book of Romans, his great treatise on justification, faith, etc., what I like to consider the forensics of salvation, he still clung to the words of Jesus, regardless of who he was teaching, whether Jew or Gentile. Some of you may have already picked up on why the Spirit may have included the point on the board in tonight's message, but if you haven't, what the Spirit's saying is that if your doctrines, starting with the Gospel, especially with the Gospel, do not include the words of Jesus, then you are falling short of the truth. Paul never forgot the words of Jesus. So, it's funny because I've made a habit of reading Gospel messages whenever I see them. And if they aren't heavily referencing the Gospel books, you know where all the red letters are, you know the words of Jesus, then I wonder if they've got it right. And I'm going to close with a very interesting thing to think about tonight on this particular topic. So hold that thought. Again, verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, 
those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, up here on the board. Now, do not forget the context of tonight's message. Who suppose godliness is a means of gain. Some believed that knowing and or even acting piously was of some value. But that's never the case unless such fruit is motivated by true faith. Again, some believed that knowing and or even acting piously was of some value, but that's never the case unless such fruit is motivated by truth. That's what it means, those people who suppose godliness is a means of gain. Verse 6, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And that's the Greek word auto. Autarkeia, up here on the board, autarkeia, for contentment. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And this Greek word means self-sufficiency, unflappability. In context, in 1 Timothy 6.6, implies this person isn't focused on the gains of being faithful, rather that they are actually being faithful, if that makes sense. In other words, they're not seeking godliness for the sake of godliness, if that makes sense. They want to be faithful. Again, means self-sufficiency, unflappability in context in 1 Timothy 6.6 implies this person isn't focused on the gains of being faithful, which can be, in a false sense, monetary, uh, reputation, uh, approbation, these kinds of things that, oh, look at how religious he is, and you get a certain kickback from the world. No, a true, faithful, humble individual actually wants to be faithful, not for the sake of what the world might kick back or what others might think about their, quote, religiosity. What Paul's saying is that those who truly have faith, they are enjoying the light of life, whereas the phonies, who desire to act religiously are left in the darkness. And this is a theme this past week up here on the board. There's only peace in the light, never in darkness. There's, there's only peace in the light, never in darkness. The epitome of that statement is the lake of fire, of course, where God's light will be absent and there will be eternal unrest and no peace, rather weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the ultimate absence of light. Again, backing up one verse for context, go to verse 5. Verse 5, And constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. You'd wonder about the average American, what they think about that. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. When's the last time you said, honestly, I'm totally content 
just to have clothes. One, one outfit so I don't freeze and enough food to survive the day. No, most of us are complaining because we ran out of Grey Poupon in the refrigerator. Oh, I'm the only one that has that stuff? Why are we not satisfied with food and covering? Because that's what godliness is coupled with, contentment, right? It says if we have food and covering with these, we shall be what? Content. So your contentment is not, has nothing to do with what the world has to say about your so-called godliness. Verse 9, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. So just reflecting back to the United States, again, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Reflecting back on the U.S., what is the whole basis of so-called American capitalism? I put the word American there because it's a perversion, but American capitalism. And I'm not saying that you are all lock, stock, and barrel with it, but some of you are, at least to some degree, like the rest of us. American capitalism, not the pure capitalism principles in the Bible, like, you know, work hard so you can eat and share, etc. Not those. I'm talking about the perversion that dominates our country. The one that esteems wealth in the most grotesque ways conceivable. The one that produces mantras like, he with the most toys wins. The one that makes idols of those with wealth and then assigns them a corresponding fame or notoriety or whatever you'd like to call it simply for having wealth. And then listens to them instead of the God of the universe. Let me, as a practical example, Johnny on the spot here. If Bill Gates was standing right here and I was standing right here, and we both had pulpits, most people would turn me out or turn me off. Is that fair? What's this guy know? As far as I know, he's an atheist. What's he got to peddle? You're only going to listen to him. Why? Because he can write a few lines of code, like, really well? Think about that. Why Why would the majority of Americans listen to him over me? Why? Because he's rich? Yep. Because he's an idol. Remember I gave you all those little shrine pictures of uh, when uh, Steve Jobs died? Same thing. Another atheist. What the heck, people? This is our country. It's incredible to see what exists in our beloved country. And lo and behold, many of you are fine partakers in its evil. And as the Spirit alluded to earlier, verse 10. Verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many 
witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Okay, now think of the United States. I'm not talking about our little microcosm here where there's a fair amount of disparity, as far as I know, between income and that kind of thing. I'm talking about the United States, even. And I'm talking about you being a member of the United States, even. But it's okay to think about you as an individual, even within context, uh, in our own country as well. The point here that Paul's making, do, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous. Americans, in general, are taught to pursue wealth For a better life, for who? Self. Self. The Bible teaches us to pursue the ability to live. If you have food and shelter, you should be content. Why are you not just content? The Bible teaches us to pursue the ability to live and share with others. The vehicle may be the same, making money but the motivation in the beneficiaries differ completely. Again, Americans in general are taught to pursue wealth for a better life for self. The Bible teaches us to pursue the ability to live and share with others. The vehicle may be the same, making money, but the motivation in the beneficiaries differ completely. When's the last time you heard anyone say, I want to get a better education? And I want to work harder so I can make more money for the sake of spreading the gospel. Record scratch. When's the last time you've heard anybody say that? I want to to get a better education. I want to get a better job. I want to work my hands to nubs so that I can spread the gospel. When's the last time that ever came out of an American's mouth? Why would Paul write these things to Timothy? And remember the context I gave you earlier. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, a long-time known godly pastor who Paul had taken under his wing. Timothy was born in Lystra, Galatia, but Paul sent him to multiple churches to spread the gospel. Timothy was in Ephesus when Paul wrote this letter. Ephesus wasn't the one with all the problems even, and still he was writing this to Timothy, who would have shared it with Ephesus. Now just think of Corinth then. Think of us. Why would Paul feel compelled by the Spirit to write such a letter to Timothy unless, as he's proven to this congregation over the years, there was a need for it? There must have been those in the churches that Timothy was pastoring 
at the time who was in Ephesus that was struggling with the temptation of riches. That was struggling with the temptation of riches. Riches, my friends, if you haven't figured it out yet, is a responsibility. Most people don't want responsibility, so they are flippant about that particular responsibility and they feel they benefit as a result. But nonetheless, as Solomon said, it's nothing new under the sun. Well, <clears throat> to put things into perspective, we Americans are among the richest people in the world as a whole. We Americans are among the richest people in the world. And yet, how many of us have taken the words of Paul here to heart? I mean truly to heart. I mean truly to heart. Not just, yeah, I know it's the right thing to do. I'm talking about truly to heart. Where we are actually, quote, doing good, being rich in good works, being generous. And don't, don't say, I give more than most people I know, when you know that you keep way too much for yourselves. And don't say, who are you, mister? to be bringing this up to me. Look in the mirror. I know. That's what I'm trying to say, my friends. I have been looking in the mirror, and I've been convicted. So what am I? No. What are all of us going to do about this? Again, I'm just reading Scripture here, my friends. You can choose to let it roll off your backs, but trust me when I say, and please, listen closely to my voice right now. If you choose to ignore the Spirit's prodding right now, well, let's just say that now you have the answer to your questions as to why you struggled to find peace and contentment in your life. There you go. You lack faith. Which means you're arrogant. Or at least you have been in the past. And if that's you, then stop it. Stop making excuses. Here's the context of American life, folks. Up here on the board... The true test for most American believers is whether or not they will take their worldly riches, and by the way, the vast majority are very wealthy compared to the rest of the world, if they will take their worldly riches and use those resources to benefit the spreading of the gospel. Peace evades those who refuse. Why are we $1,700 in the hole? I have no idea. I mean, I do. But why would we be $1,700 in the hole? Shame on us. It's grotesque. We reload the gospel and we end up in the hole? How's that work? I know how it works. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. So that is the true test for American believers, is whether or not they'll take their worldly riches and use those resources to the benefit of spreading the gospel. 
Peace evades those who refuse. Again, verse 18. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. So I thought about that. Falsely called knowledge. In other words, there's a lot of people out there, Americans, American believers even, maybe, that think they have knowledge about God and think they, that God's behind all this. Well, let me give you some examples of false knowledge in American believers up here on the board, and I'm sorry it's an eye chart, but I'll read it anyway. God blesses us for us. This is false knowledge. That God blesses us for us as opposed for others. American is a beacon of light to the world. We are fat cats. Passive evangelism is biblical, biblical, where we wait for others to come to us, sometimes begging for help. None of these things are in the Bible, by the way. This is just what we like to pat our little lives with as Americans so that we can continue on in our ridiculousness. That we aren't like the Corinthians when we truly are. And then this is one of my favorites. Idolatry is somehow excusable because it's part of our culture. And we have scripture, 1 John 5.21, that says, Children, guard yourselves against idols. These are some real fallacies. These are some falsely called knowledge. This is falsely called knowledge in America. And it's grotesque. And it's all scriptural, by the way. Anybody here want to challenge me on this? I invite you. But gird your loins. The last line item bugs me a lot because the amount of idolatry that I see in this world that has been accepted by believers, it's simply grotesque. For example, and it pains me to say this, but a pastor that I know recently stated publicly that Muhammad Ali was the greatest. Just like, you know, he always said he was. For real? Now we're promoting idols? One of the greatest American idols of all time, Mr. Muhammad Ali, I'm the greatest? That guy is the greatest to you, oh pastor? What, what, what is wrong with you, man? Why was that socially acceptable? And this pastor went on to say that he wanted to be just like him. In other words, he idolized Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, by the way, Cassius Clay as he was born, denounced Christianity for Islam the God of the universe for Allah. On this basis alone, I am floored that this pastor said what he said. And by the way, droves of Christians thanked him 
and shared kind thoughts with him, encouraging all that he said. It was truly grotesque. But this is my point exactly up here on the board again. These are the examples of false knowledge in American believers. God blesses us for us as opposed for others. America is some beacon of light to the world when we are fat cats. Passive evangelism is biblical where we wait for others to come to us, sometimes begging for help. What the hell is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? That's evangelism? Sitting on our asses and waiting for people to come to us? Are you kidding? What Bible do you read? What Bible? Tell me. Show it to me. Point it out. What is wrong with us? And I'm putting me in the equation. Sorry I called us all donkeys. What a farce. What a collective ruse. We aren't like the Corinthians, please. You don't have to read the first couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians 1 to realize that. And idolatry is somehow excusable because it's part of our culture. Just look at Paul's heart here, my friends. What is his primary concern? Look at verse 20. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which have, some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Look, I just want you to understand that I see what Paul saw and wrote about in, or to Timothy that we're all being duped by the false belief that this beloved country of ours is somehow the great blessing in the world. But all along, from a believer citizen's perspective, it's just a big old test of faith. It's just a big old test of faith. You think you deserve all these riches more than the person who's struggling in some third world country? You think you deserve it more than them? By being born? Of course not. It's a test. And most of us fail miserably every single day. It's a test. Am I suggesting there's anything wrong with being an American citizen? Not at all. I love it. But God knows the reasons He's put each of us here when technically He could have placed us anywhere. I need you to concentrate. I believe God has foreordained things in our lives that have everything to do with the reloading of the gospel and the emphasis on the Great Commission. I believe that we are meant to do wonderful things for His kingdom. I believe that he knew from eternity past that he'd be plucking us from the fire, so to speak, and that it was just a matter of time before he subsequently called us out on faith to lead. 
I've been saying this for years now. God's had a plan for us, my brothers and sisters. And in retrospect, it's clearer than ever to see why we've been down the roads we've been together. Why you all have chosen to stay on for the journey while others have peeled off. As the Spirit taught us on Tuesday evening, faith is not stagnant. Faith moves. It is a dynamic living thing. It's not dead and lifeless. It animates us. Don't believe me? Read James 2. It animates us. It motivates us. It moves us. It's dynamic. It doesn't sit on its hands and say, this is the way I designed it. This is the way I wanted a ministry to be. Oh, this is the way I wanted my ministry to be. Oh, this is the way I wanted my life. My, me, I, me, my, me. This is the way I wanted it to be. And I'm not changing. Well, that's not faith. There were a couple of slides on Tuesday that really were wonderfully expressive of what the Spirit's been saying lately up here on the board. Knowing is not living. Knowledge is just the beginning. It's building a toolbox full of tools that are meant to be used to build things, fix things, and help others, both believers and unbelievers. However, living by faith means actually using those tools, not just for self, but for others. Greater love is known than this, than he what? Laid on his life for his friends. Others. Knowing is not living. Living is what makes faith come alive. In fact, without living in what you believe, your faith is not appropriated or consummated. Until you live in what you say you believe, you won't really understand what you say you know. You won't fully, quote, get it, and you won't be set free. So, regarding sanctification, since this has been the anchor of our studies, we might rightly say, God teaches us outside of the Bible. Imagine that. This isn't the spiritual life. This is us being equipped, right? Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, to go out and get it done. Not sit there and wait till the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on our door and then pounce on them. That may happen, but that is not the Bible that I read. And if you're reading yours, you know the same truth. Some of you just don't want to admit it yet. But so goes your peace. God teaches us outside of the Bible through application, through living. The truths in the Word of God become real to us when we live them. Nowhere is this more important in the community sense than with the Great Commission. I want to read just a few verses together and see what the Spirit says to your heart. Go to Matthew 28, 18. Matthew 28, 18. <clears throat> Let's just read these at face value. I'm not going to say anything. Well, I'll try not to. Matthew 28, 18. Let's just read them together, shall we? 
And you can listen to what the Spirit says to you. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Yeah, of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go to Matthew 18.20. Okay, how do we do this thing? Matthew 18.20. How do we do this great commission? How do we commune together? For, wherever, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Go to Mark 6.7. Mark 6, verse 7. For where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. Mark 6.7. Mark 6, 7, And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Go to Ecclesiastes 4, 9. Go to Ecclesiastes 4, 9. Ecclesiastes 4, 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Again, the point on the board... God teaches us outside of the Bible through application, through living. The truths in the Word of God become real to us when we live them. So everyone here, think of it this way, everyone here right now is taking on the Word of God, taking what's coming from the pulpit as an individual, correct? But yet, as soon as you get up, and as soon as you leave this building, you're doing what? You're living. You're communing together. And how many lessons do we learn when we apply what we learn from the pulpit or the, the Word of God to life? You know the answer to that. And one last thing before we close. I absolutely love how the Spirit solved that great, timeless, so-called philosophical question for us. Brought this up on Tuesday up here on the board. Why am I here? <laughs> Seriously. Why am I here? We already know to evangelize. Stop searching for it or striving or whatever in darkness. For this is the light. You don't have to search for some greater purpose in your life. It's already been given to you. I suppose if you think that a Muhammad Ali is your idol, you have other things to chase after. You already know why you're here. It's been coming from this pulpit now for a very long time. It's the Great Commission. Why do you think he left us here? So that you can impress yourself by learning things in a, in a seat and filling up notebooks? What do you think he left us here for? So that you can be passive, fat cat Americans and wait till some poor Indian or some 
Ugandan comes begging to you for help? Seriously. Got to get those new shoes, though. Got to get that new jacket. Got to get that new hairpiece. Got to get that new whatever pair of underwear. I don't know whatever you got, you weirdos, (laughs) saving your money for. (laughs) Right? And guess what? Guess what? When you realize this, this point on the board, and grab hold of it wholly, you will find the peace you've been searching for. So says the Bible. The world's got, or the world's going, let me put it this way, the world's going to think you're a berserk. Especially those who work with you or are friends with you, etc. And they will let you know their feelings on the subject. So what? John fifteen nineteen up here on the board. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Does the world love you? Are you just a chappy old fella in the world? Do you leave these doors and everybody loves you? Why is that? That's between you and the Lord. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. What does the Bible say about knowing truth? Go to John 8.28. John 8.28. What does the Bible say about knowing the truth? Or knowing truth. And truth here is a big word. It's not just one little aspect, one little corner of the Bible. It's a big word. Truth. All of it. Remember, Jesus was grace and truth. So says Scripture. So, you want to know truth, you've got to know Him. John 8, 28. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He spoke these things, many came to believe in Him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in Him, If you continue in My word, then you are truly disciples of Mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Up here on the board. The truth will make you free. The truth is not merely knowledge, folks. Knowledge never frees anyone. The truth is not merely knowledge. The truth is all that the Word says, including the commands to obey, to go evangelize, etc., etc., etc. That's the truth. The truth is the Word, the same Word that has all these commands to obey, to go evangelize, to go fulfill the Great Commission. And those things will set you free. Not knowledge of them. The truth is, He doesn't want you just to be a brilliant scholar. The truth includes the promises of blessings when we, quote, do not merely hear and delude ourselves, as James would say in 122. We know also from Scripture that until we get straight on the gospel, we are risking confusion, that the truth that makes you free says that if you don't fulfill the Great Commission in your life, you won't be free. If that's your purpose in life, and you never fulfill the primary purpose in your life, 
How much peace do you think you're going to have? If you feel like you were built, you ever hear somebody, oh man, I was built to do this. I was built to do this. And if I wasn't doing this, I'd be miserable. Well, you know what? You were born again to go evangelize, to go fulfill the Great Commission. If you're built for anything, it's that one thing. So what do you expect if you don't do it? What do you expect? You're, you're built to be fulfilled by that activity. That very activity, the doing, is what's going to fill you up. Go to 1 Corinthians 9.16. 1 Corinthians 9.16 Otherwise, it's vanity of vanities. Read Ecclesiastes tonight. You'll see what he's saying. 1 Corinthians 9, 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe, and this is an expression of grief, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe is me. Grief. He's like, that grief is the opposite of peace and contentment. So, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. I'd like to leave you with one last thought. And please realize that it has everything to do with your experiential sanctification in time. And concentrate. I sometimes wonder why so many Christians aren't, aren't supernaturally motivated to share the gospel. I sometimes wonder why so many you know, professing Christians aren't supernaturally motivated to share the gospel, if they even are Christians, but that's another story. I firmly believe that there are many in this world that profess Christianity that cannot be saved if the only gospel they've ever clung to is a false one. That's a whole other story. This question is something to ponder, though. Have you ever thought about why some Christians haven't been supernaturally motivated to share the gospel? And maybe you can relate personally. And possibly you are still wondering why God hasn't motivated you personally to go out and evangelize. And this is just food for thought, for God only knows the truth. It's just one possibility that I've been thinking about. After all this work, almost a hundred hours of lessons, of reloading the gospel, unmotivated, quote, evangelism, Do you think it's possible that those who remain unmotivated lack the faith to go out, a la Matthew 28, 18-20, because the actual content of their message is wrong or minimally incomplete? Because we know that God won't motivate a person to spread a false gospel. Let me say it again. Do you think it's possible that those who remain unmotivated lack the faith to, quote, go out because the actual content of their message is wrong. I'm talking about in their heart. I'm talking about not just being able to regurgitate some scripture 
John 3.16. Okay. Read that one off the back of a coin. What about the person of Jesus Christ? What did he say? How did he start his ministry? How did he end his ministry? What did he have to say? All those red letters. Let's skip by all the mental ascent and all the playing of games. Why, my friend, are you not motivated to spread the gospel? Could it be that God sees your heart and you don't have it all yet? And he doesn't want you out there spreading something wrong. Have you ever wondered about that? There are whole bodies of people that claim to have knowledge about the gospel, but none of them are motivated. Oh my God, how's that work? How could you not be motivated? If you knew the gospel, you believed it, how could you not be motivated? It's a good question, right? It's a good question. I mean, we were built to share it. That's what I'm being, that's what I'm learning. We were purpose-built to share the gospel. But for years, and I'm throwing myself in the equation, for years I had, you know, my motivation was lacking. I wonder why. Why didn't, I, why didn't he have me go out and write all kinds of books about the gospel the way I understood it before? Maybe he didn't want me mucking up this thing any worse than it's already mucked up. God won't motivate a person to spread a false gospel. Oh, sure, you can be motivated, but it won't be from Him. It'll be for other reasons. It'll be for religious reasons. It won't be for God, from God. Because He's never going to motivate something evil like that. So it's a good question, isn't it? Do you think it's possible that those who remain unmotivated... they lack the faith to go out because the actual content of their message is wrong or minimally incomplete. God won't motivate a person to spread a false gospel. This is something we all need to contemplate. For myself included, I have wondered until recently why I've not been more motivated towards the Great Commission. Duh. Duh. I personally believe that God wanted me to get it completely nailed down first. Therefore, it wasn't until recently that my motivation has spiked supernaturally. What wasn't there is now there in spades. And he also met this spike with a missionary trip in response to a spike, in request to spread the gospel abroad. Imagine that. I'm going to equip you, and then I'm going to give you something to do. Can you imagine that? That God would actually ordain all of that from eternity past. These things just don't happen all of a sudden. He doesn't reload the gospel, and then we have some enormous spike in requests to spread it. I know for a fact, by talking with some of you, that this is exactly what's happening in your own souls. Heck, you saw an example on Tuesday, an ordained evangelist weep before you at this very realization. Why is it that an ordained evangelist would suddenly be stricken with a, let's call it a rekindled fire? Is that fair, Scott? A rekindled fire in his soul to go out and take the streets by storm seeking souls to save. You know why? Because God reloaded the gospel fresh and renewed in his soul, filling in any gaps that might have been not been there prior, let's say. Is that fair assessment? Okay. 
And after he was done completing that good work in him, a.k.a. sanctifying him, God then gave this person a greater grace, a.k.a. faith, to fuel his motivation to go out and evangelize. Again, the point of the board. Do you think it's possible that those who remain unmotivated lack some faith to go out because the actual content of their message is wrong or minimally incomplete? God won't motivate a person to spread a false gospel. So, if you personally are still unmotivated, is it possible that this applies to you? And just as a disclaimer, I don't want to get any emails. This isn't obviously the only reason why someone would be unmotivated, okay? It's just a question. But it certainly is worth our consideration. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.